You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Well, we now come to our sermon text this morning, which is from Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. And this will conclude our second Acts series as uh, we conclude with uh, the first part of the Apostle Paul and his uh, transformation, the conversion and then the fruits of that conversion this morning. Uh, So hear these words starting at the second half of verse 19. Uh, all the way through verse 31. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem, and those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Amen. Such uh, wonderfully comforting news uh, as we've gone through the book of Acts to read there in verse 31 about the church having peace. The church having comfort from the Holy Spirit and the church walking in the fear of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we have in our text today, uh, very clearly we see the the same episode as it were repeated in the life of Paul. Paul has this uh, time of fellowship with the local uh, group of Christians. Paul then proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ publicly and then Paul is run out of town. Uh, trying to escape with his life. And this happens in Damascus, and then this happens in Jerusalem. And then the end of the text will have him uh, sent far away to his hometown of Tarsus. And so this is really the, the, the culmination of Paul's conversion here. And two things I think that we see is clearly we have to keep in mind that we we have the Lord Jesus Christ ruling over his church, defending and advancing it. And he does so through the most unlikely of means, the the apostle Paul, who was formerly Saul the persecutor, the one who, who in every way wanted to see the church destroyed. Yet in a moment, Jesus transforms him, and we see then the, the gospel going forth. 
But I think this section is also helpful for us to see that the conversion that Paul had was a real conversion. There's real fruit that is evident in his life. That from this this amazing encounter with Jesus, Paul believes, repents, and then goes forth in the work at hand. And so uh, we'll see first Saul in Damascus in verses 19 through 25, and then Saul in Jerusalem. And again, following the same pattern, there seems to be, there's fellowship, there's preaching, and then there's fleeing. So beginning in the first, first part in verse 19, for some days Paul is with the disciples at Damascus. Luke here is actually condensing down one to three years of Paul's life. So there's one to three years that Paul is at Damascus with the disciples, with the church or the churches there. And it's a time where he's getting to know them, getting to love them as brothers and sisters. And likely as well, he is, he is having time to understand the fullness of the gospel. He had such a, a great education in the Old Testament, and now he is having this probably these amazing times of seeing the Old Testament now finally, clearly, and what it's, it's speaking of. And in that, he then starts to publicly preach and proclaim Jesus. And he goes to the, the synagogues. So immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. And this actually would be Paul's pattern throughout his ministry, that whenever he would enter a new town, he would start first with the synagogue, a place he was familiar with, a place in which he could express his ideas. And they would be uh, times in which they could be debated and understood. And so he would do this uh, regularly, and the pattern really starts here. And again, if you think about from Paul's perspective, where is a better place to start than a local synagogue, which would be incredibly familiar to him. But note as well, Luke doesn't just highlight the fact that Paul is is going out and preaching. Uh, He has a very specific message that he is proclaiming. And Luke notes for us uh, two things that he is saying that really uh, encapsulate everything. That Jesus is the Son of God, and that Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah. And as we come to this phrase, Jesus is the Son of God, Paul has to mean, the the only thing that, that Paul can mean by this is that Jesus is fully God. He is fully divine. Because no other option would make sense for a monotheistic Jew. No, no, other, uh, no other would be so earth-shattering than to now be having to kind of understand and comprehend God as triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because, again, in the Jewish belief system, there were powerful prophets and angelic messengers. None of this would, would shake them to their core. None of this would be considered irritating blasphemy if Jesus were just a great prophet or a mighty angel. What would shake them to their core, what would be blasphemous to the point of needing to kill them, would be that Jesus is fully God. And Paul also says Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything, all of our hopes that the Old Testament has been driving us to. Right? He's the true king from the line of David. He's the final priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's the greater prophet that Moses said would come. Everything in the Old Testament was approaching this point and is now here. In many ways, I'm sure Paul, now that he understands this, is probably wondering, why are they not accepting this message and rejoicing? 
Everything we have hoped for has actually come true in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the people there, they they rightfully, they're amazed. They're astounded. The people in the synagogues, they know Saul. The the word has, has arrived before Saul that he came in order to take the people who proclaimed Jesus Christ back to jail in Jerusalem. His sole purpose there was to to take these people violently, if necessary, and bring them back to Jerusalem. The ESV says, is is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? The man who made havoc in Jerusalem. It's probably too soft of a term. The idea behind it is violent oppression and plundering. It's a very strong word to describe what Paul's life was before Jesus. And again, the the havoc that he wreaked upon Jerusalem. Paul was one of the the foremost (laughs) troublemakers for Christians. He caused tremendous problems for people who followed Jesus. Again, he's the last person you would expect to become a Christian. And yet, not only is he a Christian, but now he's standing in the synagogue proclaiming Jesus. And so just as we've started to see through the book of Acts, there are two responses to the gospel. There are those who hear the gospel, repent, and become believers. And then there are those who become angry at what the the belief in the gospel would have them do. And they become angry because they, they cannot stand up to Paul. That Paul's proclamation of the gospel, that he is, he is taking down their objections. They have nothing to, that they can argue against. Paul is filled with this spiritual strength that speaks of Paul in verse 22, increasing all the more in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus. And clearly, obviously, this is a spiritual, supernatural strength. Right? We understand Paul is not working out and suddenly much stronger physically before these Jews at Damascus, but he has this spiritual, supernatural strength. He's, he was baptized and now filled with the Spirit. He is given the words. Remember, Jesus says, don't worry about what you'll say. I will be speaking through you. And here, Paul is speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's able to withstand these enemies. And we think of that famous passage that's often misused, where Paul says in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things. And here we see what he means by that. I can withstand these enemies of the gospel and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ because God is with me. I think Luke records this for us to remind ourselves, to to, to see, right? It's not Paul's oratory skills. It's the Holy Spirit at work in him. And I think it's also instructive to see what Paul is doing here. Paul is not preaching himself. He's not promoting his brand. He's not concerned with himself. What he's concerned with is that Jesus' name is publicly proclaimed. And actually, for Paul, even if that costs him his own life, he will make sure that that's done. That is his sole concern. Well, then, almost ironically, in verses 23 through 25, Paul now has to flee. 
You can think of Paul's playbook as, as this Pharisee persecuting them. If you can't win the argument, you'll win the fight by killing them, and that will ultimately silence them. Suddenly now, they can't stand up to Paul, and so their idea is to have Paul killed. Again, the same theme. This, this is what happened to Jesus. This is what happened to Stephen. Uh, this will happen to other apostles, and actually, I think all but John, every one of them will be killed for their faith. But here, Paul flees. And we just had the, the previous uh, encounter with Stephen, who didn't. So Stephen and Paul are, are both in synagogues. They're both proclaiming the gospel. And yet Stephen dies, and Paul flees. I think it is interesting when you think of that. Shouldn't Paul have stayed proclaiming the gospel right to the very bitter end? And why didn't he? Was he afraid? Simply put, it just wasn't God's time, God's plan for him to die there. You remember what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, you will carry my name to kings and to Gentiles and to Jews. And there's a sense where Paul must understand that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened yet. So obviously I'm supposed to, to, to continue to live in order to be able to accomplish what Jesus has commanded me to do. And so Paul flees. Paul flees with his disciples, interestingly, it says, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an, op an opening in the wall, lowering him out of a basket. So we had the scene by night, Paul in some kind of large basket being lowered by his disciples, those he, he likely uh, converted, those in the, the city of Damascus that Paul shared the gospel with, they repented and then were, in a sense, taught and instructed by him as well as the rest of the church. And so Paul is lowered out of this basket, fleeing for his life. And what does he do? He, he doesn't flee to some, you know, some country where he can sit on the beach and, you know, drink cocktails and not have to worry about it. Actually, Paul, what Paul does is Paul goes straight to Jerusalem. The, the worst place you could think of for someone in his position to go very much out of the frying pan and into the fire for Paul. And so Paul heads to Jerusalem in verses 26 through 30. And this uh, same, uh, the same idea here of uh, he has fellowship with the believers. He's preaching Christ, and then he's forced to flee. In verses 26 through 28, he comes to Jerusalem to join with the disciples there. And you think that they would be astounded and amazed and, and, and ushering and wanting to bring Paul into their fold. But when he comes and attempts to join him, they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And again, it's interesting to think about. Jesus commands us to forgive, and yet it seems as if they're, they're not quite ready to do that. And when I first read this, I kind of thought, well, are, are they, the disciples here, are they sinning against Paul by not bringing him into the fold? And I think there is actually an element of that. But for me, reading the text, it's easy for all of us to gloss over the fact that the man standing in front of them was the very man who carried husbands and wives off to jail. He was the very man who, who stood by and rejoiced over the death of Stephen. Stephen. 
This is the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem. That everything that they suffered could be almost pointed right back to him. And that many of these who are are supposed to welcome Paul in would have been those who had been carted off by him or scattered across the world. He would have hurt and injured them in many ways. And so there is a sense where I can understand their hesitation to welcome this man back into the fold. But note that there is actually this this reconciliation that happens. We're not given great detail, but Barnabas intervenes. Barnabas, who will become a great traveling companion of Paul, he, he brings Paul to the apostles. And Paul records this in Galatians, that he seems to have met with Peter and James. And Barnabas just simply lays out for them this conversion that happened. That Paul met the Lord Jesus Christ, repented and became a believer. But the second thing he brings out is that Paul is showing true fruits. True fruits of his conversion. He is now not only claiming to be a Christian, but willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. And both of these are pointing to a real conversion in Paul's life, says Barnabas. And the apostles there, they seem to just immediately understand, yes, you're exactly right, this man is truly a believer. And there seems that there's some type of reconciliation that must happen, for then we read these great words of how Paul went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. That surely, I'm I'm sure, Paul came to them and apologized deeply from the bottom of his heart for the grief and the pain that he had caused. And these believers there, these disciples who were hesitant of him, they accept him back, or they bring him into the fold. And he's fully accepted. And it's just this beautiful picture of the gospel at work. When Jesus speaks of forgiving, not seven times, but 77 times. Here it's worked out in the life of Paul. And through it all, right, Paul is shown just patient. Paul is not demanding that they accept him because he's now an apostle. I think Paul, again, hard to speak for him when it's not in the text, but I'm sure Paul had to feel that, that weight and that guilt of coming in among the very people who are now his family, who he previously hurt so deeply. But thankfully we read that though there's hesitation and worry, in the end, Paul is welcomed into this church. And we get that that wonderful concluding statement of peace amongst the churches. Well, Paul also, he picks up really right where we last left off in Jerusalem. In the life of Stephen, Stephen was proclaiming to the Hellenist Jews, to these synagogues. And that's where Stephen is martyred and and the disciples or the, the Christians spread out throughout the land. And here, Paul seems to be coming right back to that very spot and proclaiming to the Hellenists, just as Stephen did. And again, just to note that this is very dangerous, that the last time a a disciple of Jesus was here proclaiming Christ to these men, he died for it. 
And here Paul is is standing in their midst. The one who last time in his zeal approved of, of the murder of this innocent man now stands before them, telling them the very same thing Stephen had. Telling them that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, that they too must repent and believe and find forgiveness. And you could probably understand Paul being very empathetic to these men, going, I was just as ignorant as you were. I had misread my Bible just as much as you did. I was so unbelievably wrong. Yet men and women who who hear me, please understand But just like last time, these people who are listening, they're they're hard-hearted and they're stubborn. The words seem to have no effect on them, which is quite sad. All Paul's words do seem to uh, inflame their rage at him. And yet again, they are seeking to kill him. And so Paul is forced uh, to flee once more. As you look at this, throughout Acts, I sometimes wonder if we look at Christian ministry... Uh, like the band on the Titanic. Right? That, that you have to stay and do this no matter what the cost. And yet, interestingly, Acts gives us very different responses to difficult situations. Right? Stephen's situation, he stayed and he dies. But God uses that to then spread the church out. But the Jerusalem Christians, in the midst of this persecution, they flee. And by doing so, they take the gospel with them. The apostles, however, in the midst of this persecution, they stay in order to stabilize the church. Paul, when he gets into the midst of this same persecution, Paul flees, taking the gospel with him to the furthest corners of the world. It's one of those things, it's hard to to make decisions for every single possible situation. I think what Acts is telling us is that in these difficult situations, right, God-given wisdom is sometimes needed because these are, are difficult decisions to be had for these churches and for these Christians. But what the hope that it gives, especially for Christians in persecuted countries is that Jesus is over all of it. He's the one directing it, whether it's the death of Stephen or the the fleeing uh, Jerusalem Christians, whether it's Paul or whether it's the apostles, that Jesus is orchestrating all of this. I think the rest of Scripture really helps us understand that God is directing all things. And that in any situation we find ourselves in, our, our calling is clear. It's pursuing holiness proclaiming the gospel, loving your neighbor, and loving God with your whole being, wherever you find yourself. And at the end of this section in Acts, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ has has moved Paul and positioned him into the Gentile world. That the same movement that happened to the Jerusalem Christians, which results in the gospel going to Samaria, now Paul finds himself in the Gentile world, something we'll pick back up on when we resume in in chapter 13. And so then we end up again with this wonderful summary statement. Paul, who was wreaking havoc in the church in Jerusalem. Now we, we have a church here at peace and rest, being built up, walking in fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit. 
it multiplied. This is a summary statement. It's meant to transition us to what Peter will be doing with the inclusion of the Gentiles. But think of where we come from. The beginning of the book of Acts speaks of 120 disciples sitting in an upper room, unsure of what to do next, knowing that Jesus has commissioned them to go to the ends of the earth. And here we're not even to the halfway mark in Acts, and yet we're not talking about a church in Jerusalem anymore. We're talking about churches in Judea, in Galilee, and in Samaria. And really, the next big hurdle will be the inclusion of the Gentiles, which is where Peter will be leading us, and that, in a sense, passing the baton to Paul for the rest of the book. But notice well, as well this, this summary statement about the work of the triune God. It's really wonderful to see this statement here that they're walking in the fear of the Lord, and the Lord has been shown throughout chapter 9 to be the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christians in these churches, they're, 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 they're those who are in awe of Jesus. They're those who understand him as the, the true Son of God, the one who is the Lord. They are marveling at his works that he's continuing to do throughout the churches. But then also it speaks of the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that he's bringing peace and rest to these churches. And all of this is according to God the Father's plan. As we looked at in the beginning of Ephesians, that, that God has foreordained all that comes to pass, and this unfolding plan is happening according to God the Father's wise counsel. And this little summary statement in verse 31 could almost be a sermon in and of itself, that there's so much hope here, even in this one verse. And so as we... we, we wrap all of this up, tying this all together for our, our second Acts series. I think two things that we should see happening in this text that, that immediately give us hope for today. The first one is Jesus reigns. Jesus continues to lead his church. Again, remember Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends into heaven and you could be left with this picture that, well, he has left his disciples to fend for themselves. But rather, the book of Acts shows us that he is intimately involved with directing, defending, and expanding his church. He is the one who sends the Holy Spirit that he may bring comfort and transformation. When we think of the, the ways in which these churches are walking in the fear of the Lord, if I had to say, for the persecuted church, certainly the, this idea of comfort and finding comfort in difficult times is, is certainly something we should be praying for, that they would have this peace and rest. But I think for churches in the West, the, the big thing to take away is this fear of the Lord. Do we fear him more than we fear others? Do we, uh, are we in awe of him? Do we show reverence to him? Do we realize that Jesus is God and the greatest power in the universe? I think it's something we all could do well to recover more. And again, think of what Paul has said later in his letters, that all things work together for the, the, for the good of those who trust him, that all things are working together. This is the same man who is fleeing both of these places under persecution and the threat of death. So when he says that, he doesn't mean your life will be easy at all points, but rather God is with you through it all. And guiding it all to his great purpose. 
And the other theme to, to see in Acts is the gospel goes forth continually, despite opposition. This is one of the major themes, I, I believe, that Acts wants to show us, that the church will face difficulties of many kinds. But actually, the gospel seems to, to, to do better in those situations than it does in, in easier times. And the book of Acts ends by reminding us that the gospel is still going forth unhindered. It's wonderful. It's the last word in the, the, the Greek uh, of Acts. The last word you end with is unhindered. Again, if I was a Puritan, I'd preach an entire sermon on unhindered, but it's wonderful to think of. And so not, not only will we see that the gospel going forth geographically, but actually ethically outward to encompass the whole earth. The gospel has that power. And we'll see that through as we continue uh, coming back to Acts. But what we can take away today is the gospel still going forth throughout the world 2,000 years later. The fields are still white and ready for harvest. We should still be praying to the Lord of the harvest. We still need laborers to go forth. And we still need to be praying that we would see this great harvest. So from this text, I mean, simply pray fervently while trusting. Let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres.co.uk. For more, thank you.